Our scripture reading this morning is from the end of Matthew chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there. If you have one of these Bibles from the back, you'll find it on page 814. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, these verses form um, sort of a bridge between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Last Lord's Day, Mark helped us uh, through chapter 9. This morning we'll be looking into chapter 10. And these verses lead us into that. So please follow the word of God as I read Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, church. As we look at Matthew uh, 10 this morning, um, and I'll pray for us in just a moment, as Tim just reminded us, the verses he just read sort of serve as a bridge between Matthew 9 and chapter, and chapter 10, which we'll look at this week. Verses 35 and 36 talk about the compassion of Jesus as a sheep or as a shepherd for his lost sheep and his needy sheep. And last week we looked at six aspects of Jesus' compassion in chapter 9. And so what we're going to do this week is look at the second two verses, kind of summary in chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus talks about the harvest, the harvest being plentiful, the laborers being few, and what it means to labor in the Lord's harvest. So this week we want to look at six aspects of what it means to be a laborer in God's harvest. Just like we looked at six aspects last week, we're going to look at six aspects this week. So let me pray for us as we dive into chapter 10 this morning. Father, I wonder what it would look like for us to be an answer to our own prayers uh, this week as we are instructed by the Lord Jesus here this morning to pray to the Lord of the harvest that workers might be sent out. We just want to offer ourselves this morning for that, the answer to those prayers. We don't want to just be praying for other people, as important as that is, but also be praying for ourselves that you would make us the very answer to our own prayers, that we would become the types of people that would be willing to labor in your harvest. We know the need is great. The harvest, you said right here, is plentiful. There's no absence of harvest. As you told us, Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 35, you said the fields are white for harvest, and yet the laborers are few to be found. So we pray to you this morning that you would raise up laborers to send out into your harvest field. And we ask that you would use this sermon as a means to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, uh, as I prayed that and thought about what it means to be an answer to our prayers, I'm reminded of a time in college. You know, I, I was involved, when I was in college, I was involved in a ministry called Campus Outreach. And if, if that ministry had a theme, it was these two verses. 
It was being a laborer in the harvest. It was praying to the Lord of the harvest. I mean, more than any other prayer perhaps we were taught or, or modeled for us or discipled to understand was this idea of being a laborer in God's harvest. So I can remember very keenly a season of my life in college where I was praying through this prayer continually. And then it just hit me out of the blue one day, like, I want to be a laborer in God's harvest. I don't want to merely just be praying for laborers, but I want to be one. And it's neat to see over the years how God has has answered that prayer in my life. And I pray that you would experience something similar. So what I want to do is dive right in. We're going to look at six aspects of what it means in chapter 10 to be a laborer in the Lord's harvest. And be praying. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray, right, in these verses about these things. So be praying as you listen to the sermon this morning. And be communing with Jesus over what he's showing you from Matthew chapter 10. Because I'm on a recruitment mission this morning. I'm on a recruitment mission for laborers for the harvest. And so I pray that you would be interacting with Jesus and saying, here am I, Lord, send me. And that you would be eager to receive what it means to be a laborer in the Lord's harvest. And you'd be eager not to waste your life. So that's that's what um, I pray would happen this morning. So let's get into the first one here. Number one, here's the first aspect of what it means to labor in the Lord's harvest. It means that we're called to the harvest. We are called to the harvest. Notice what how Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 10. He says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Don't you love that? The specificity of giving us the names of these laborers that are getting ready to go into the harvest, namely the first 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Matthew writes, recording the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 at the end, and he talks about praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, the immediate fulfillment of that prayer is Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. That's the immediate fulfillment that as soon as he pray, prays and, and call, notice he calls the disciples to pray earnestly and then they're the ones who become the laborers in the harvest. Now this call was primarily defined to Israel. The 12 apostles were to go and minister to the Israelites. Notice in verse 5, these 12 sent out, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. And enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this was an immediate fulfillment. That's what we see in the Bible, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel goes to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And we see it in Acts 1, 8, too, where we're called to be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and then to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is starting here. He's starting with Israel. Now, our commission is just as important... And just as critical, unless we think that being called to the harvest means we have to be an apostle, we we have to understand where Matthew's going in his gospel. Remember, at the end of the gospel of Matthew, in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, no longer just to the house of Israel, but all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Now that's clear. That belongs to us too. So lest we think that this calling to the harvest is only limited to the apostles here. No, it's not. It's a calling that extends out to us as well. As we move, in fact, even as we move throughout this chapter, we are going to see the marching orders becoming more and more general and applying to all disciples at all times, not just the uniqueness here among the 12 to the people of Israel. All right. I acknowledge that this is a specific time in history where this prayer is getting answered, but I would argue that this prayer is, is still necessary and is still needing to be answered even until the end of the age. Because the Great Commission is still in effect. We are still called to go and make disciples. So we are called to the harvest as well, brothers and sisters. Just because we're not one of the 12 original apostles doesn't mean that we're not called to the harvest. Remember what Matthew chapter 4 verse 19 said, Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So really, and this is so critical to understand, we cannot follow Jesus without fishing for people. We cannot separate discipleship from discipling. By discipleship, I mean you following Jesus yourself. By discipling, I mean helping others follow Jesus. Discipleship, or I should say discipling, is part of discipleship. We follow Jesus, and in order for us to follow Jesus, what it means to do that is to help others follow Jesus. So discipling then is a part of discipleship. The early church got this. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul is writing from prison and he's, he's being, he's encouraging the church at Philippi because they're sharing the gospel. He says, brothers, you're sharing the gospel. And I'm thrilled about that. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, let's just look at a couple of these. Let's look at these two 1 Corinthians texts. If you'll turn with me, hold your place in Matthew. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I just want to underscore this morning that this whole task of evangelism is for all believers. It's not just confined to the religious professionals. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, I urge you then... Be imitators of me. Now just hang on there and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he says it again. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now you say, okay, how are we supposed to imitate Paul? All right, back up. You're in chapter 11, verse 1. Read the previous two verses or three verses. Start at verse 31. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Very famous verse. We know it. We believe it. Verse 32. What does it mean to... Live life for the glory of God. Really, in this verse, eating and drinking, it means discipling others. Look at verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, because that wouldn't be glorifying yourself, not glorifying God, but that of many that they may be saved be imitators of me. So Paul is saying, I'm laying down my rights, I'm laying down my privileges, I'm laying down my advantages for the sake of other people that they might be saved. Now go be imitators of me. He's calling them to be laborers in the harvest. He's calling the church in Corinth to discipling as part of their discipleship. So people are harvested when God brings them through us 
into the kingdom and into fellowship with Christ. We're called to be laborers in the harvest. And as I said last week, found people find people. Disciples of Jesus desire to make disciples of Jesus. So I just want to say an application to some of our, some, some of the older folks, older saints in this room who I was so encouraged by Tammy's testimony. Just as a mature, seasoned, godly Christian investing in the next generation. And I just want to call you to be that way, older brothers and sisters. You have so much. You've walked with the Lord so long. Don't keep the lid on that. Let Pour your life and your walk with Jesus. And guess what? You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to be a superstar. You just need to be available. Available to Jesus to, to pour your broken, needy soul into others. And show them what Jesus has taught you. That's all discipling is. It's helping others to follow Christ as you yourself are following him. So that's the first aspect of being a laborer in the Lord's harvest. It's being called to the harvest, and we are. Second, let's talk about our conduct in the harvest. So we're called to, to, to be laborers in the Lord's harvest, but what is what are we supposed to do? What, what's our conduct supposed to be like? Notice what Jesus instructs his disciples. Now, the rest of this sermon is just going to be the words of Christ to his disciples about what it means to be a laborer in the harvest. So we do well to listen to our master here. So starting at verse 7, he says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. We'll stop there for now. Now, no one's going to dispute, I, I think, that this is a, this is a historical narrative in which Jesus is giving specific instruction to his 12 apostles as they go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and how they're to conduct themselves. Okay, But there are principles here that we can learn for what it means for us today to labor in the Lord's harvest. And I, and I just want to pull out a couple of those of those principles. First of all, notice we got a message to proclaim. We lead with a message. That's what Jesus says to them first. Verse 7, proclaim as you go. So we're not just interested in doing nice things for people or being kind or showing charitable action or love. As important as all that is, as we're going to see, we lead with a message. And it's a message about a kingdom that demands a response. We have a king that we're representing as his ambassadors. We are calling all men to bow the knee to this king, to receive him as king. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We, 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 we have a message to proclaim. But second, we do it in a certain manner. We don't just go stand on street corners and yell at people. We, we, there's a certain way we do it. We get up close to people. Right? So it involves getting up near people. Verse 8, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, we're not going to have that power. 
All right, this is specifically given to the apostles as first century representatives of the coming kingdom of Jesus to validate his ministry and authenticate the claims of, of him being Messiah. But I think what we learn here is the importance of dealing with people's physical issues, loving them in practical ways, addressing felt needs, things that are really present in their life. What's going on? So he says, enter in, enter into the mess the disease, the dying, the dirty, the despised, go to them. The ones that nobody wants to go to. Go to them. Go to the people the world ignores. That's who he's calling his disciples to go to. Not to the rich, not to the elites, not to the professional, not to those who have it all together, but to the needy. And then he says, go in such a way that you demonstrate your trust and confidence is completely in God. So he says to them, look, don't take money and don't make sure you pack all kinds of provisions. Now, again, it's, it's not, this is not advocating, not preparing for a missionary trip, having the necessary funds like, oh, I'm just going to trust Jesus. I'm just going to go buy a plane ticket, get on a plane. That's not okay. It's not, it's not dismissing wise planning and careful thought and strategy. It's saying, Make sure that your trust and your confidence, and he's literally doing this to his apostles. He's like, I'm going to strip you of every sort of thing you could lean on other than me. So get the principle here. He's looking for them to trust him as they move out into this mission. That's the principle. That's what we need to learn. So as we go, our conduct is to be this. We have a gospel message to proclaim in a loving, caring way that really is concerned about people and where they live and what their conditions are like and how they're hurting. And when we do it, we go as those who are trusting in the Lord to do the work. So when we go to those with great need, we will find that God meets our needs along the way. And as we reach out to the needy, we will find Jesus sufficient for our needs. See, Jesus is being a good disciple maker here. He's saying, listen, guys, part of your discipleship is discipling. And so I want you to take a step of faith here, even as we're calling other people to take a step of faith by coming into the kingdom. I want to call you to take a step of faith, to get outside your comfort zone, to do things that you're not comfortable with. Can't be a disciple and stay in the holy huddle. Say so we got to get out. So we're to realize that. Part of our discipling of others is a means of the discipleship that Jesus wants to do in us. Part of the way he wants... See, he doesn't look at these disciples and say, fearless. they got no issues. They're absolute trust in me. No, he sees them as fearful and needy. And he said, okay, I'm going to teach you about trust. I'm going to teach you that you can trust me. So when you go into towns, you're not going to know anybody. And just start talking. Okay, Jesus... I mean, he's putting them out there. It's like live without a net. Here it is. Go go after it. And then he tells them, though, what to do as they go into the towns. Verse 11, whatever town or village you, you enter, find out who's worthy in it. That is, who's receptive to your message. And stay there until you depart. He's like, so you will have people who will want to hear what you have to say. Be encouraged. It's not all just a rejection mission. Okay, you're going to have people that are going to want to hear what you say. And then, but there are also going to be some people who don't receive you. And then he says, don't be too concerned about that. Just move on. 
Okay? And so he gives them a realistic expectation of what they can hope for in mission, which is both reception and rejection. It's not either or. It's both and. People will receive us. People will reject us. So that's our conduct. So, brothers and sisters, is have that mindset about you as you go about your work and your family life and your daily life. As you seek to reach out and make disciples and proclaim Jesus, know how you're supposed to do it. Lead with a message, love people, trust God, and expect rejection and reception. And be okay with being patient for the long haul. Not everything's going to change overnight. It just We just need to get the right glasses on so that when we go about our work, we're not overwhelmingly discouraged or over unrealistically naive and optimistic. We need to have a thoroughgoing gospel hope and realism about us as we engage in mission. So that's the second point, conduct in the harvest. Third point, conflict from the harvest. So we got, we're called to the harvest. We got to conduct ourselves in a certain way in the harvest, which is a way that manifests trust in God and reliance upon Him. And then conf, but we need to also that just because we love people and just because we proclaim a message of reconciliation and just because we trust God doesn't mean we're not going to get some heat for it. So we need to expect conflict. And this is what Jesus picks up on in verse 16. Conflict from the harvest. Let's read. Behold, I am sending you out. As sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So Jesus assures them right up front, doesn't he? That it's not going to be a cakewalk. Discipleship is not a cakewalk. If we're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be pushback. Second Timothy 3.12, every one of us who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Jesus is very realistic about that with his disciples. He tells them up front, these are some of the things that are going to happen. You will be hated. You will be rejected. You will be seized. You will be persecuted. It will be challenging. Here's what David Platt says about the reality, the sobering reality of conflict in the harvest. He says, the reality is we must face, the reality we must face is this. The danger to our lives increases in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. Everyone who wants a safe, carefree life from danger should stay away from Jesus. The world responds with hostility to him. So as we are conformed to Christ more and more, the world will respond to us more and more as they responded to him. If you want to avoid being betrayed, hated, and persecuted, then don't become like Christ. We are so prone to sit back and settle for religious routine and comfortable Christianity because it's safe and the world likes us in that mode. 
as long as we live lives just like everyone else, going to church on Sunday and keeping our faith to ourselves, we will face little risk in this world. But the only problem is that we will know so little of Christ. But when we do know Christ and we're becoming like him and proclaiming him, things will not be easy for us. The more Christ is manifest in your life and in your family, the harder it will be for you in this world. This is what Jesus said in Luke 640. Everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Does that frighten you? I mean, it is perfectly natural and normal for us to read these things and wince. And to read it and be like, oh, Lord Jesus. I mean, you mean I'm going to be flogged? I mean, imagine the apostles hearing this. You mean I'm going to be dragged before governors? Dragged? They're going to deliver me over? Families going to betray me? I mean, this is the most horrific details. Verse 21, brother is going to deliver brother over to death. The father, his child. Children are going to rise up against parents and have them put to death. I mean, this is horrific. The most intimate, personal relationships are going to be ripped apart as the kingdom breaks into people's lives. So then you'll be hated by all. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And he, he encourages them not to be gluttons for punishment. Okay, they're not just to throw themselves out there. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. That is, if you can get away, get away. Sometimes the Spirit will constrain people to, even though they're facing persecution, they feel like they need to stay, that it's time. And, and, and other people feel that if the Spirit's opening a door and they're facing persecution, they should flee. Look, we, both are right. Both are right. So that's why he tells them in verse 16 to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. It's going to take some wisdom. It's going to take some savvy here in knowing how to interact with people. And that's why our trust and confidence has to be in the Lord. And that's why he tells them, look, he tells them up front, you need to be innocent and wise. And he's like, uh, we're not that wise. We don't know what to do. What are we going to do when they drag us before these people? What are we supposed to say? What are we? I mean, and that's why he assures them. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're saying. For what you, what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. How awesome. How awesome. God speaking through me. The God of the universe. What a privilege. And that's the confidence that we have. It's not in our training, our past, our resolve, our strength. It's in our trust in our Father. That when we're at our most fearful and our most anxious and our most worried, He's going to come through for us. He's going to show up. He's not going to abandon us. He'll be there. And it'll be the most intimate, personal, gripping experience of your life. Because you will know your God and you'll know him with you there in those moments. I mean, just read some of the stories of church history and martyrdoms that people have faced and what they were able to do in the midst of that. And it will build your faith for confidence, for much lesser treatment, for a evil look or somebody saying a word. Ooh, somebody spreading a rumor about you. Oh, no. You know, but this is like the most horrific things. And if Jesus is with us in the most horrific, how much more is he going to supply grace and help to us when we are facing lesser conflict?
need to move on. That was the third one. So we see our conflict from the harvest that's going to come. It's not going to be easy. Jesus is rattling heaven and earth here. This is going to be some serious... The devil's not just going to lay down and let the kingdom come without some warfare. So Jesus, in the fourth place, gives us some courage. He gives us some courage for the harvest. We've seen that we're called to the harvest, that we've been, we, how, how do we to conduct ourselves in the harvest, the conflict that's coming from the harvest, fourth point, courage for the harvest, verse 24. This is where Jesus is going to move and provide some steel in his disciples' backbones and get them ready to face this. He says, the disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household so have no fear of them? Stop. We're, I'm gonna, I want to give you five encouragements for laboring in the Lord's harvest in the midst of conflict. Why you shouldn't bail on Jesus, but engage and stay with it. Jesus tells them three times in this section to not be afraid. And then he gives us at least five encouragements for for why we shouldn't be afraid. He expects us to be scared. He expects us to be weak. He expects us to be timid. But he gives us five encouragements. Here's the first one. He says in verses 24 through the beginning of 26 that when we suffer like this, when we're mistreated and we're misunderstood, it's a sign that we belong to him. And that should encourage us. That's why he says a disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. I mean, you do realize you're following a crucified king, don't you? Like I'm getting ready to go to the cross and be crucified and raised from the dead. So how you expect health, wealth, and prosperity, I have no idea. You know, because I'm following I'm crucified king. Ground before the glory. Cross before the crown. No penthouse and private jets for this disciple. Unless they're following a different king. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. So if they call the master of the house the devil, Jesus, they're certainly going to malign those of his household and call them similar things. Then he says, so have no fear of them. Don't be afraid, because when you get the things that I got, it's a sign that you belong to me. So be encouraged. You are mine, and I'm yours. That's that's the first encouragement. The second encouragement is in verse 26 and 27. He says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what is what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetop. So how is that meant to be encouragement? He says, one day... All this preaching that you're doing and all this loving that you're doing and all this kingdom that you're proclaiming will be publicly vindicated in the universe as true. What people tell you is false now and that you're a fool for believing it will one day be reversed when Christ the Lord appears and vindicates you. He says, nothing's covered that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be known. So what I tell you in the dark, what I tell you personally, proclaim it out there. Because it's it's coming one day when it will be, when that truth will be publicly vindicated in the universe and will shown to be true. And everyone who has scoffed at you and everyone who has reviled you will be utterly ashamed. So he encourages them, look, don't be afraid. Truth 
one day, vindication coming one day, you will see, you will know, you will be there. And you who have stood on my side and stood with me and labored in my harvest and done what I've called you to do will be there with me when the Son of Man comes in his power and his glory. Third encouragement, and this is this is perhaps the the most ironic of all, but it, it's just so great. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I mean, have you ever thought about this? He says, don't be afraid, disciples. You can only be killed. That's the worst thing that's going to happen to you is your soul gets dispatched to paradise. That's it. So the worst thing, the worst thing is that you can be killed and it can be horrific death. But all it's going to do is dispatch your soul to paradise. You should fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, namely God, rather than fearing men who can only destroy the body. That's his point. Choose who we're going to fear here. Are you going to be afraid of people? Or are you going to be afraid of God? Are you going to choose the fear of man or the fear of God? Well, the fear of God can do a whole lot more to you God can do a whole lot more to you than man can do to you. So the point is, I'm going to entrust myself to the one who, once the body has been killed, can deliver the soul. Can save the soul. And he means that to be encouraging to them. (laughs) You can only be killed. Verse 29 and 30 provide another encouragement. Because I know, I know hearing that, I know me hearing that is a frightful thing. It's a scary thing. It's a, it's enough to make you undone. And you can read those things and say, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's easy to say that thing. It's easy to preach this thing. It's easy to, but I mean, this happens, you know, Christians are martyred and killed and the hostility can get to that point. Perhaps even in our own generation, we don't know. In our own country. But he he reminds them of some precious, precious things here. Jesus is bringing out the pearls here. And he's given us precious, comforting words. Notice verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's this encouragement? I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You have, you should, you need, you need to put a zero, you need to give zero thought to the idea that I won't be near you when you're being killed for my sake. You need to give zero thought to that. Because guess what? My father gives 10,000 thoughts to sparrows that are sold for pennies. And I give, and how much more, Jesus says, will I think of you and care for you when you're at your, when you're at your most, most susceptible and vulnerable for my sake? How much more will I come to your aid, bless you, help you, and be near you? I know the number of your hairs. My knowledge of you is thorough and exhaustive and infinite. I know exactly what you need. Don't be afraid to risk things for me. He knows 
And he will provide and help and bless. We need not fear loss when we risk for Jesus. We need not fear like God's not going to come through. God's not going to keep his word. God doesn't love me. And Jesus' point in these verses is that God is so very close to you and he loves you so very deeply and he will make sure that you know that. That's meant to give us courage. Finally, one last word of encouragement, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father in heaven. So he comes on the heels. This is, behold then the kindness and severity of God. That's what he's, he, Jesus is tough and tender, and he goes back and forth between both of them. In the previous two verses, he's very tender and loving. He said, I love you. Sparrows are sold for a penny. I number your hairs. I'm close to you. But listen, if you are afraid to say my name and speak my gospel in front of flesh and blood people who can only kill you, then you're going to hell. Those who acknowledge me before men, I will be their advocate on that great day and say, this is my child, Father. Receive him into your kingdom. But if we shut, shudder after all the encouragement he's given us and all the promises he's given us and still refuse to believe him, you know what we're called? An unbeliever. It's unbelief. It's evidence of a lack of faith, which is what saves. So let's not play games with this. Like we have the option to keep our mouths closed and think that we're going to heaven. We can't shut up about Jesus and expect to be with him forever. We can't go decades without gossiping about the gospel and expect to be saved on the last day. How long has it been, Christian? Since you entered the awkwardness. And engaged with an unbeliever about the gospel of Christ. Do it for your own assurance sake. Do it to prove that you're real. That Jesus isn't just a sham to you. Prove it. I can't prove it in the next couple of weeks that he means more to you than life itself. Which is what we sing every Sunday. It's easy to sing it. Let's live it. Let's live it. I just want to say a, a word to you briefly, those of you who are, who are not yet Christians here. What will you do with this Jesus on the last day? When his word is demonstrated to be true. When you just coasted along with the culture and went along with that, what everybody, everything was accept, acceptable by everybody else. And you dare not say anything that's going to be offensive to anybody. What will you do with this Jesus on the last day? He will not acknowledge you before his father in heaven. You need to repent and receive him now. Believe in him. Come to him. He is. He, he feels this way about you. He loves you. He wants you in his kingdom. But he wants to make you a laborer for his sake. So that's the courage he's given us for the harvest. Fifthly, cost. There will be a cost of the harvest. Verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. <laughs> wow. What a statement. I have not come to. Now he did ultimately, right? That's, that's the ultimate truth. Yes, peace on earth and goodwill to men. He proclaimed it, you know, all that. So the angels were not lying, right? 
Peace among all those to whom he is pleased. He has come to bring peace. But not first. Not not initially. It says, do not think I've come to bring peace on earth initially, like I'm just going to come and usher in this glorious utopia. No, he said, I've not come to bring peace first, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's worth a whole sermon. I got one minute. I, I encourage you, meditate on this. Pray through this this week. Wrestle with what your Savior is saying to you. He's saying you must love me above all else. That's the point. Even those who are closest to you, you must love me more. You must lose your life for my sake. You must take up your cross and follow me. You must live a life that is worthy of following me as a crucified king. Whoever loves his life for my sake will find it. And he's calling us to find our lives by losing our lives. And he reminds us in this last section, and sixthly, the comfort of the harvest. All right, we're going to be comforted by the harvest because there will be fruit from all this cross-bearing and all this denying of ourselves and all this losing our lives for his sake. There will be rewards. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. So let's just stop there for a second. You will be received. And I love that. You will be, as you deny yourself, as you labor in the harvest, as you take up your cross, as you follow Jesus, as you speak the gospel, as you love others, you will be received. And if you're received, Jesus is received. And if Jesus is received, his father is received. Which means people will be brought into the kingdom through my labor, through my life. Isn't that what we want? To get to heaven and know some people were there because of us? I mean, we don't want to be solo walking into heaven. Unless it's because we were faithful to share the gospel and God just didn't, you know, and that happens sometimes. But I think the encouragement here is, look, you speak the gospel enough, you love enough, you care enough, you lay your life down enough, you're going to see some fruit from that. Don't think it's going to, you're just going to, you know, lay your life down as a laborer in the harvest and there's no harvest. He said the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Go, look, if we got a few laborers and a big harvest, chance of the laborers bringing home a big harvest is pretty good. So be comforted by that. Be encouraged by that. You're going to be rewarded for your faithfulness. That's what he says in verse 41. You'll be rewarded for this. Don't think I'm going to forget about you. Verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones, and this is this is practical, basic discipleship. If you're just giving the gospel to, 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 to somebody and, and they become a disciple, listen, if whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward so the the emphasis is on the lesser to the greater look if you get rewarded for caring for christians in the most basic way think of the reward you're going to receive for bringing people into the kingdom i mean that's his encouragement like i am going to lavish you with reward 
So do you believe it? Do you believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive? Do you believe that you will grow best as you help others grow? Do you believe there's more joy in helping others than having an exclusive focus on your own spiritual health? Do you believe that? Because guess what happened when Jesus spoke these words, these exact words that Luke records in Luke chapter 10? Guess what these disciples came back and what was their attitude? They were pumped up. They were thrilled. They came back and it says they were exuberant with joy. So we saw Satan fall from heaven. We were able to cast out demons and it happened and we were able to heal. And then he said, wait, okay, rejoice in this. It's good, guys. This is good, guys. It's like getting a very excited toddler to calm down for just a second. He says, okay, but listen, your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in this. By your demonstration of faith and your willingness to go into the harvest and labor, I want you to be assured of this. Your names are in heaven. Rejoice not that the demons submit to you as great as those things are. Here's where your joy should be. I bought you with a price. You belong to me. You're going to heaven. I love you. And that's where we get the passion for mission. That's where we get the desire to share Christ is the fact that Christ has purchased us and loved us. We don't do it out of guilt. We don't do it because, oh, good grief, this is one more thing that Jesus requires. No, we do it because he's loved us so well. And he's given us, he's given his very life for us. I mean, this was the thing that drove Adoniram and Ann Judson to the mission field. I want to share this with you, and this is what I'm going to close. Then we're going to watch a brief video in just a second. We named our son Judson after the Judsons, Adoniram and Ann, because we were so gripped by their example as missionaries. And it was a little over 200 years ago that Adoniram and Ann Judson had boarded a ship and set sail for India on a journey that would eventually lead them to modern-day Myanmar. At that time, it was Burma. Along with William Carey, the Judsons are considered pioneers in the modern missions movement. They were converted Baptist missionaries who were previously Congregationalists, and they were, they were and continue to be used by God in some extraordinary ways for the cause of global missions. Now, lest you think it was easy getting to the mission field for them, I want to read an account from the biography to the Golden Shore, which is an, an, a, a biography of their life. I recommend it to you highly. The intense suffering that the Judsons endured on the mission field was foreshadowed by a letter from Adoniram to Anne's father, Asking for permission to marry his daughter. Adoniram's on the way to the mission field. He's asking Anne's father to let his daughter go so that she can go with him to the mission field. And this is what Adoniram wrote very candidly to his soon-to-be father-in-law. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. There weren't planes then. You're not getting back. Can't visit. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Notice what's motivating him here. The love of Jesus personally for him. 
Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from people who have been saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? You know what her dad said? Yes. And the couple was married, and a year later they set sail. Anne's dad would never see his daughter or son-in-law again. But I, they, they've seen each other for a while now. In fact, Anne would lose her life sharing the gospel with people who had never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And as a result of the Judson service, today there are nearly 4,000 Baptist churches with more than a half a million followers of Christ in the heart of Buddhist Myanmar. And that's the fruit of this letter and this father who also denied himself for the sake of the kingdom, giving up his daughter and his son-in-law for their sake. Now, I don't anticipate anybody's going to be offering themselves for that kind of missionary service as a result of the sermon. My goal in this sermon is to encourage you to share the gospel with people in Owensboro. That's my encouragement. And so to do that... We're offering two things. I want, really want every one of you, we have enough for everybody to take one. Take this life conversation guide. If you didn't pick one up on the way in, take this life conversation guide with you. And what this will do is teach you to have a natural conversation about the gospel with, with people's life as the starting point. I remember um, an encouraging pastor told me one time, look, I asked him, how do you share the gospel with people? How do you get into conversations about the gospel? He says, I just work my way around the rim of somebody's life until I find a crack. And that crack is an expression of brokenness. It's need. It's emotional. It's physical. It's a lack. It's something you hear the heart. And this will help equip you to have natural conversations with people around that and help them explore what is God's design for that, how did we mess it up, and how does Jesus fix us and repair the brokenness and sinfulness of our lives. So uh, the pastor, I'm gonna, we're going to show a video here. So guys, if you'll, drop the, if you'll drop the screen, the video is just about five minutes. So what it's going to do is teach you really basically how to use, how to, how to use, the, um, how to use the, 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 the conversation guide, how to, how to explore it. And um, we hope you'll take, a, take an opportunity to pick one up on the way out and use it in the next couple weeks with somebody. Give it a shot. You don't have to take the book with you. Just learn it. And then you can learn how to use a napkin or a piece of paper or just talk about it with people. And it's very natural. And uh, let me, So let me pray, and then we'll start the video. And then worship team, you guys can come up and lead us in, in our closing song. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be laborers in your harvest. It's a privilege that you would extend... Um, be willing to extend the kingdom through us through and that you would lay your hand upon our working hands and our, your words upon our words and your deeds upon our deeds and that life and power would come through the gospel. We thank you for the grace that, that is ours through that, the privilege to co-labor with you, and we pray that we would count it a privilege, that it wouldn't be a burden, but it would be a great joy because of the way that you have treated us and the kindness that you have shown us. We are blessed, Lord, according to Psalm 67, to be a blessing. Say, God, be gracious to us and bless us and make your way known on the earth that your salvation might be known among all nations. So you're, we're blessed to be a blessing. So. Thank you for the privilege of, of thinking about these things this morning. Now drive them deeply into our souls and in our lives and equip us 
to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, I'm Jimmy Scroggin. Hi, I'm Jimmy Scroggins. I'm a pastor in South Florida. And like you, I believe that life on mission really matters. And to that end, we've developed a tool at our church to help our people share the gospel of Jesus with people that they know and people that they relate to every single day. How many times have you been in conversations where people come and they begin to share problems with you or challenges that they're facing? Well, what we want to do is help you turn conversations about problems and challenges into conversations about Jesus and his gospel. And that's why we've developed this tool called Life Conversations. And we do it using three circles. And the three circles looks like this. We believe that God has a design for every single area of our lives. That includes our families, our marriages. It includes our sex life, our money, our career, our work life. God has designed for everything in our lives. The problem is that something about us wants to go our own way. And so very often, we depart from God's design. When we depart from God's design, the, the Bible has a word for this. And the word in the Bible is the word sin. And so what we're really doing is we're sinning against God, leaving God's design Inevitably, when we sin against God's design, we end up in a place of brokenness. And brokenness really hurts. It's real. And all of us can identify that if we're religious or if we're irreligious, if we've been to church our whole lives, if we've never been to church at all. Everybody understands what it means to feel broken as a result of our mistakes or our choices or the choices of others that have hurt us. When we find ourselves in brokenness, whether that's in a bad relationship whether it's something that's internal, we're addicted or we're depressed or we feel discouraged or we feel empty or cheap or used, whatever it is, we find ourselves in brokenness. We always want to find a way out. We want to find a way to alleviate that brokenness. And so we begin to go on a search. And we do all sorts of things, trying to numb the pain, to escape the pain, to get out of our brokenness. And what normally happens is when we do that, we just get more and more and more broken. Well, what we really are doing is we're saying we know something needs to change. And brokenness always feels like a bad thing, but it's really not a bad thing. In a lot of ways, it's a good thing because brokenness is the way that God gets our attention. And when we're feeling broken on the inside and when things around us are all messed up, that's when we know something has to change. Well, after trying to go our own way and trying to find a way to escape the brokenness, we recognize we really can't change ourselves, but we still know something has to change. And that's why we want to do something about it. The, the Bible has a word for change, and the Bible word for change is the word repent. Well, we want to repent, we want to change, but we realize we can't change ourselves, and we realize we need something else. Well, the Bible has a solution to this problem of brokenness, and it's called the gospel. Gospel is a Bible word. It simply means good news. And this is the good news, that God loves us. And he loves us so much that when he sees us in our brokenness, he doesn't just leave us there. 
In fact, 2,000 years ago, He sent His own Son, Jesus, to come and live a perfect life. He lived on the earth, and He never departed from God's design. He never sinned even one single time. He loved people. He cared about people. He stood up for people who couldn't stand up for themselves. He spoke up for people who couldn't speak up for themselves. But one day, when He was about 33 years old, people that He loved took Him outside the city of Jerusalem. They put a crown of thorns on His head. They put nails in His hands and nails in His feet, and they crucified Him. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, God did a miracle. God took the sins of the world, my sins and your sins, and he put those sins on Jesus. And when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins. The Bible says after he'd done everything that he came to do, that he died, they took his body down off of the cross, they laid him in a tomb, and three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the good news, because when Jesus rose from the dead, He proved he could do exactly what he said he could do. Forgive us of our sins. He proved that he was exactly who he said he was, the Son of God. And this is the good news. So the change that we really need, we've tried to change ourselves. It doesn't work. The change that we really need comes from Jesus. And so we want to change, and we're going to believe. We're going to believe that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus came to rescue us from our brokenness. And an amazing thing happens we make that step and we come to that moment in our lives when we turn from our sins and we turn to Jesus, God does a miracle in our hearts and He gives us a new power. He gives us a new ability. He gives us something new inside of us that allows us to begin to recover and pursue God's design. What's really awesome about that is no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how many mistakes we've made, no matter how deep our brokenness is, that Jesus comes into our lives And He begins to help us pursue and recover God's design from right here, right now, right where we are. And then once we become a believer in Jesus, an amazing thing happens. We begin to receive the blessings of God. We begin to experience the blessings of God. And then God sends us right back out into a broken world where our friends and our neighbors and our relatives and our coworkers, they need to hear the good news of Jesus and we get to tell it. This is a conversation guide. We call it the three circles, and we do it because we believe that life on mission really matters.